Well, as our good brother has already given you the salutations, happy Father's Day. Okay. Uh, this is a day that we proverbially stop and smell the roses and celebrate Dad. We think about what Dad has done uh, throughout the year, throughout our lives, and uh, we then offer him handmade cards with things and words we, as dads, can't really read. Uh, this morning I got a card of me wrestling my boys. I guess that's something they find really endearing to them, but we call it beat-up boy, and I was wrestling I was wrestling my boys, and Asher is choking my throat on the thing. But it's done with a lot of love. Right. So, amazing. I, I love those things. So we, we do take this time. Now, I, this is not going to be a Father's Day sermon, uh, but I want to take a moment there to, to just express my thanks to you fathers who have put in the hard work, sometimes tirelessly and thankless, thanklessly, you've done great things. And some of us are great fathers. Some of us are not. And we're trying to get there. So, Father's Day does celebrate Dad, but fathers do play a very special role in everyone's lives, statistically. You cannot look at the statistics and the facts and see that fathers aren't important. Fathers are important, even if they're really bad at being dads. Statistically, the rate of success of having a father in the house, even if he's a drunk and beats his family, is still better than a single mother raising their children in the nurture and fear of Christ. To have a dad present, statistically, is still better to not have the man in the house at all. Now, God's grand design is that man is in the house with the wife, and that this is working together well, and that God is giving instructions to this man who is then fathering his family in the best way that he knows how as a servant of Christ. That is the ideal situation that we have. But you're aware that we do preach expositorily here, so this isn't just going to be a sermon about Father's Day. But every once in a while, God does allow things to line up providentially. And today happens to be one of those days because we are talking about the Father. And so when we go through this, we're going to see how Jesus has uh, defended his position and his deity and defended his relationship with his Father. And so there is a, uh, there is a point in which today we do speak of glorious triumph. Amen. Now let us stand for the inspired word of God. May the Lord bless the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts. I'll be reading in John chapter 10, starting in verse 22 through 30. At that time, it was a feast of dedication. This took place in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple of the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will be snatched, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. 
I and the Father are one. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So, for many weeks, we've been discussing now the situation with Jesus has been in. We've been talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember? Raise your hand if you remember. We've been in Feast of Tabernacles for a bit. So, we're in chapter 10. Starting back in chapter 7 is when the scenes happen from the Feast of uh, Tabernacles. In in chapter 7, Jesus snuck into the Feast of Booths, which is the Feast of Tabernacles, without his disciples. They didn't know he was there. And he began teaching, which led to a near miss of being arrested. In chapter 8, there was the woman who was caught in adultery, also at the Feast of Tabernacles, in the temple. They were about to stone him to death. Right there in the temple. There was Jesus telling the same exact audience who heard him forgive the woman's sin, the same audience, he tells them that he's the light of the world. Also, Christ explained that the truth will set you free. Free from relying on your lineage as a badge of honor. Jesus stood up to them. And he did this all during the Feast of Tabernacles. He said, and by the way, also, I am. I am the I am. Also during the Feast of Tabernacles, after he leaves Jerusalem, he finds this man who's blind on the roadside. He spits into some dust, makes clay, rubs it into his eyes, and the man's healed. And he did all of this just to show the Pharisees, and not just them, but the Jews, that your traditions have outweighed the merciful laws of God. And you've put too much weight on your traditions. Now, we've left the Feast of Tabernacles. Two months later, Jesus is in isolation for two months from Tabernacles to the Feast of Dedication. So in chapter 10, starting in verse 22, we now see that it's winter. And here's another feast, the Feast of Dedication. This isn't an Old Testament feast. This wasn't a feast that was directed by God that the people of Israel were to participate in as a part of their religion. This was a feast that they had, as the Jews, had made for themselves. They'd been celebrating it for a little over 100 years by the time Christ was born. It was a time in which they would light candles and place them in their windows for eight days. Today, the Jews still practice the Feast of Dedication. They call it something different, though. They celebrate the eight-day battle that happened, and Judas Maccabeus was the victor, reestablishing temple worship because the pagans had come in and outlawed all worship of God. They outlawed all of the Jewish traditions. No one could practice. No one could go to temple. No one could do sacrifice. No one could pray to God. But Judas Maccabeus made a stand, and Israel fought against them. And in eight days, they were victorious. Now, there was a menorah burning in the temple. This is is why they call the Feast of Dedication. There was a menorah that was burning in the temple. It only had enough oil for a couple of days. Miraculously, the Lord caused that menorah to burn for eight days, and this is why they celebrate today Hanukkah, 
Feast of Dedications is Hanukkah. It's the Feast of Lights, the celebration of lights because of what God had done for them there. This is all setting the groundwork for what we're getting into. Remember, Jesus did say, I am the light of the world back at the Feast of uh, Booths. Now he's in a time where they're actually celebrating with lights and he's reminding them, I am the light of the world. Last week, Pastor Ratliff talked about being a good shepherd and what that meant, what it would be like if we didn't have a good shepherd, what direction we would go if we didn't have shepherding in our life. Jesus then tells them again, right here in chapter 10, at a different feast, that I am the good shepherd. This feast took place in Jerusalem, and you've got to remember how important it is for context. Context is going to be the key of everything you ever read. Please, you can get into a lot of danger if you just take a scripture, pull it out, put it on a bumper sticker, and drive away. Keep in context what we're talking about. A lot of good scripture verses out there sound really beautiful and flowery and have absolutely nothing to do with you. But we put them on t-shirts and mugs and we go, this is my life verse and I'm going to live by this. And it had absolutely nothing to do with you, your faith, and it was only for a very specific group of people at a very specific time within history. So remember context. Things can sound nice and we can glory in the fact that that can be their bumper sticker, but it's not yours. When Jesus walked through the temple during the Feast of Dedication, it started to raise a stink again. You remember just two months before, he was in the exact same temple. He forgave a woman of her sin who was caught in adultery. The men's dropped their stones. Then they took their stones back up again to kill him. Two months earlier, he's back in the same temple. People recognize this guy. He's the guy who stirs up trouble. So they approach him again. And they said, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? Just tell us plainly that you're the Christ or not. This is where I sit back in amazement and I go, just how idiotic can you really be? You were ready to kill him two months prior because he said he was the Christ. And two months later, he comes in and now you're saying, just please just tell us, are you really Jesus? Are you really the Christ? They didn't really care to know the answer. It wasn't that they couldn't understand the words. They couldn't understand in their heart that he could be the Christ. So they said, tell us plainly. Today we see a level of blindness even within our own culture. Our own culture can't even define what a woman is. How ridiculous that is. The youngest kid in this room could tell you what a woman is. They could have a baby. And a man cannot. But culture cannot make this determination. Modern culture is at a complete loss for this definition. They have absolutely no idea how to answer it because they're afraid to get shot down, ostracized, canceled, discontinued. They will not say what we would say a woman is because they are afraid. It's not that they don't understand. It's that they've been blinded. They have been blinded to believe the lie because the lie is more comfortable and less confrontational. Jesus performed miracles. He forgave sins. He told them, I'm here on my father's business, and yet they're still asking him, just tell us plainly, are you the Christ? His whole entire ministry, now we've crept up into three years, 
This is the last time that Jesus is seen in making a public declaration of his deity. In scripturally, in a few weeks from now, he will be going to the cross. Right? And this is how we can see how uh, when you teach expositionally, it doesn't always line up. We are well away from Resurrection Sunday, but in a few weeks from now, we're going to be talking about the crucifixion and the resurrection because we've chosen that verse by verse, book by book. Why could they not understand of three years of his ministry? Why couldn't they understand? Because they were blind. They were been, have been blinded, just like Paul, who was previously Saul. His scales had to fall from his eyes in order for him to see that he was persecuting the church. He thought he was doing a good thing by being zealous for God. And he was persecuting the church unknowingly. And God caused those scales to fall. No man caused those scales to fall. Paul didn't wake up one day and, say, and scratch the scales from his eye. God caused those scales to fall for Paul. This is what God does for those who are blind. Now, many of us in this room at one time were blind. Is that right? We couldn't see the truths of God. It took God to show us and to reveal to us and illuminate to us and cause our scales to drop so that we could see our need for a Savior and just how wicked we are without Him. So let's see what Jesus says about this question of saying it plainly. Jesus said, I already told you, and you don't believe me. Everything I do is because I've heard my Father, and then I do those things which I've heard Him tell me. But you still don't believe. Everything that I do has testified as to who I am and who you are and that you are still blind. The reason why you can't see it is because you are not of my flock. You are not my sheep. So I'm paraphrasing here now. Jesus, two months prior, told them that he was the good shepherd. And here he's explaining again that he's still the good shepherd. And he said that my sheep know who I am. They know my voice and I know them. They listen to me when I say come. They listen to me when I say go and eat of that better pasture. They're my sheep. They listen to the good shepherd. And we have that relationship. And I am listening to my father who is telling me what to say to my sheep. They know him because God has caused them to know him. The father has opened their eyes and dropped the scales from their eyes so that they could know the good shepherd. Then he gets into a wonderful doctrine where we extrapolate the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints as well as the doctrine of election. Here. He says, they're in my hand and no one can snatch them out. And no one can snatch them out of my father's hand who's greater than all. And then he follows up and says, I and the Father are one. This is a big no-no for the Jew. Don't do this. <clears throat> By saying you can't be snatched out of my hand, he's saying no one. That's literally every single person who is of Christ cannot be removed from Christ. Cannot be. This is a wonderful thing for us here today in this room to know that God has us. He has it all under control. 
Something so small as not having a place to worship. It seems really big for us because we want a place to worship. But in the grand scheme of life, our brothers and sisters around the world are worshiping in basements because they're afraid of their government killing them for being Christian. It's a first world problem that we don't have a beautiful place with a pipe organ. You've gone through things in your life. Near-death experiences with your children. This stuff is really small, but God has the small stuff and the big stuff. He has all stuff under control. It's his to do as he sees. And we are to sit back and watch God deliver this wonderful display of his grace and compassion. One of the hardest things I've ever had to witness is our good brother Andy losing his wife. It was way harder for him, but it was hard for me to see, to watch that. To watch your brother losing his wife that he loved so much and the kids losing their mother. And in that, Andy kept such a shining example and perspectives of saying, this is in God's hand. Whatever he would will, we are going to rejoice on that. And he did. And he mourned, but he did rejoice in the fact that God was in control and God did what he needed to do, even with a difficult thing. So at this point, when Jesus said, I and the Father are one, this infuriated them. Jesus made himself equal with God the Father. By drawing this conclusion that no one can be removed from his hand or no one can be snatched out from the Father's hand because he's greater than all, but he puts himself on the exact same level. The Father who's greater than all is just like me. You can't take anyone out of his hand. You can't take anyone out of my hand. He made himself equal with God, which we know now, fast forward 2,000 years, we know he's equal. They at that time didn't believe it, nor did they have much experience or writings about it. We know it now. Easier for us to sit back here in America with our house full of five to ten Bibles. They didn't have that available to them. All they could go on is what this man was telling them. Now, thankfully, there were people who believed him. But imagine someone coming into our town saying that he is the Messiah and he's doing miracles and he's doing things in God's name. Would we be so inclined to accept Now, theologically, we would say, no, the Bible doesn't say that. It's not happening like that again. But would we have the same perception then as we do now? Of course not. You would have to see Christ for yourself and see his miracles be performed and to hear the authoritative words come from his mouth. And you know what? Because you're sitting here in this seat today loving Jesus, you would have loved him then as well because you've been born for this purpose to be a sheep within the flock of God. That's just how God has made it. Now, these words that Jesus said to them was, were blasphemous. They were guilty of the death penalty. He made himself equal with God, the Father of all things. He's saying, I... Now, he said this two months ago, the Feast of Tabernacles, but they, met, they missed it. When he said, I am the I am... That's like saying, which he was, I'm the father incarnate. I've been brought down out of heaven, and I'm the God who all your forefathers have been worshiping. Now he has said this, and they still don't get it. Answer us plainly. Are you the Christ? Just tell me yes or no. I've been telling you for three years. 
so haven't my disciples, so haven't the people in the town who I've healed. You are blind and you just can't see it. I could tell you, yes, I am the Christ. And you still ask me in two months from now, are you the Christ? Tell me plainly. This is the kind of people that Jesus was dealing with. So sometimes when we hear Jesus be harsh, we see him only harsh with those who figure themselves to be religiously perfect and accurate. He was never harsh with the people who were broken. He showed great compassion and mercy to those who had nothing, those who were broken, those who were of ill repute because they didn't consider themselves to be right in God's eyes, and Jesus made them right when they worshipped him. By expressing that he's equal with the Father, this was a blasphemous statement. It was enough to kill him. Others say that this was Jesus' way of explaining that he does what the Father tells him to do because his relationship is so close with the Father that he gets direct counsel from the Father. That, too, would have been enough to stone him. However... Whatever way you fall, whether you think he was trying to prove his deity or he was simply saying, I just have that kind of close relationship with the Father, however you fall on the side of the fence, Jesus had expressed it plainly here. You cannot separate the Son from the Father and they share a relationship that can be shared with others. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed to God, the Father, and said, make them one as we are one. Jesus was not asking our Heavenly Father to make you deity, to make you another person of the Godhead. He was asking God to make him, make us in relationship with him as they too were. So, in conclusion, it's critical for us to understand that there is an immediate need to be about our father's business. Fathers and mothers are bringing their children today and offering them to Moloch. They are throwing them into the fires of hell. There is current litigation in place to prevent us from speaking what the father would have us to speak. This culture is trying to steal, rob, and destroy your children and to make you out to be the evil one for trying to stand in their way of living the way they should be able to live. This world is against us. But remember, they were against him first. And Jesus told him, don't be surprised when they revile and persecute you because they've hated me first and they did this to me first. Culture is trying to steal all that we hold dear. Our Father in heaven has already given us the GPS guidance map. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number two, has said it perfectly. In the question it says, what rule hath God God given to direct us on how we may glorify and enjoy Him? The answer is, the Word of God, which is contained in the Scriptures of the Old and the New Testament, is the only rule to direct us on how we may glorify and enjoy Him. Culture will tell you otherwise. You don't have a rule. This is why it's important for the men of the church to hear me now. It is our responsibility. On Mother's Day, we talk of flowery things, beautiful things, 
nurturing things, gentleness, just beauty. It's like a perfect promo for reclaimed heritage. (laughs) On Father's Day, however, we talk of war. We talk of grit, blood, and sweat, and labor, and thankless effort that you will put in as a father to instruct your children and to train them up to be nightmares to Satan. It is our responsibility to be the gatekeepers for our children's future, to make them children of God. Everybody has a plan that God has in plan for them, and we don't know the end from the beginning as he does. But it is our responsibility to train them up in the way they should go. And how should they go? They should go be about their father's business. When you find a 12-year-old boy named Jesus in the temple, and he's gone for days, and his parents finally are reunited with him, and they say, where have you been? And he was a little taken back. How would you not know that I was about my father's business? Why didn't you look for in the temple in the first place? You should have known this, Mom. Joseph's not my dad. You should have known this, Mom. It's our responsibility as men to train our children up for war because this world is at war with us. They are taking our toddlers and making them march in gay pride parades around their schools with rainbow flags flailing in the hallways, chanting, pride is great, pride is great. The teachers of the school system are trying to affect the children and teach them the opposite things that we haven't been instructed from the word of God. Society is trying to make you out to be a bigot and a hater because You stand for Christ. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of what man can do to us. If you are really an extremist, you might go to jail for speaking too loudly somewhere. But you'll get released because constitutionally you're allowed to. But in that moment, you might go to jail. We've already seen people be arrested. One lady was arrested, not here. It was in uh, Canada. She was arrested for praying in her head across the street of an abortion mill. Arrested for praying in her head. It's coming. They hate you. They're against you. So, shore up your castle. Shore up your foundations. And the only way to do that is through the word of our Father, who has given us the instructions on how we ought to live, contained in the scriptures of the Old and the New Testament. It is our responsibilities. And mothers, it is yours as well. But fathers, when God created Adam in the garden, he created Eve to be his helper. It was his responsibility to take the charge and she was to help him. But he had the responsibility of doing this. Now, granted, I get it. Not everyone, maybe even in this room or in all the people who are going to be coming to church in the future to come, not everyone has that scenario. I get it compassion for that but we do our best with what we have and God does the rest where we lack even if you have that idyllic best case scenario Christian dad, Christian mom, Christian kids things can still go awry and haywire there's no guarantee for any of it 
But God has called us to be steadfast and resolute in the words that he has given us, in the lives in which we should lead, and how we are to glorify him and enjoy him while we're here. Amen? Just remember, as you train your children in the way they should go, no one, and if they are of Christ, and they practice the word of God in their lives, no one can ever snatch them out of the Father's hand. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for being a great father to us, for being a father that is compassionate, 